This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we'll talk to Dr. Janet Wright, former ecology professor and member of the Mississippi Coast Audubon Society. The winter is a great time to see birds here in Mississippi. Many of them are making their winter migration and are mixing with the birds that call Mississippi home year-round. Dr. Wright will talk about the birds uh, that we're seeing and some of the best places to see them this winter. Also, we're ready for your pet questions, or if you've had a recent brush with nature that you want to share with us, go ahead and give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. And a weekly reminder, if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Liddy. Let's uh, start with you still out there in Oregon on the West Coast. Uh, what uh, interesting things have you seen this past week? Oh, uh, continuing to see a lot of good waterfowl and uh, woodpeckers. I've known a lot, noticed a lot of woodpeckers this week, particularly acorn woodpeckers. And that's a different one from what you see in Mississippi. But um, I'm anxious to hear what Janet has to tell us about watching birds in the winter. And I think she may mention woodpeckers as well, because I know that summer is always a good time to find them. You know, when the trees have lost their leaves, it's a great time to go looking for birds because that's, you know, what hides them the most in the summer and the spring. So uh, woodpeckers are on my list this week. Birds of prey again, another peregrine falcon. And hummingbirds, surprisingly, hummingbirds are still very active here. And we see the Anna's hummingbird the most. It's a big hummingbird. But even on mornings that have been frosty and we've had to um, uh, bring out new uh, syrup for the hummingbird feeders because it was getting so cold, that uh, even even under those conditions, the hummingbirds seem to be very active here. So it's been really fun to watch them. Uh, it's been cold this week uh, here in central Mississippi, at least, uh, supposed to warm up for the end of the week. Uh, wh- how would you compare a Mississippi winter to what you're experiencing out there in Oregon now? Well, just from looking at uh, weather station, weather.com, you were actually colder than we were a couple of nights. Oh. We've been getting just shy of freezing most nights, sometimes in the high uh, 30s, but it just never really warms up very much. There's cold rain most of the day and then uh, gets to maybe, you know, mid 40s at the most. But then uh, we've had a couple of nice sunny days this week and that's been just glorious. Everybody here learns to really appreciate the sunshine in the winter. So it's like everybody pours outside. They're uh, kind of have to watch your social distancing even on some of the trails and wear your masks because um, there are people out. I mean, not crowded, crowded, but we'll, you know, pass maybe half a dozen other groups of hikers while we're hiking. You know, I think a lot of people do think of rain when they think of uh, the Northwest there. Have you had any snow? 
No, no snow at all, but we see snow on the mountains. So, but no snow here in town in Corvallis. Uh, I know there's probably some snow, I think, uh, was occurring yesterday or today, uh, not far west of us. But we're we're in this nice valley that's close enough to the coast that um, gets some, some warm effects. You know, as cold as the water is in the Pacific, still those are considered warm currents and they um, really help the warm the conditions on land close to the coast so we get that effect a little bit the coastal effect where we are so again we've seen gorgeous snow on the mountains and that's just incredible to look up and see mount jefferson blanketed in snow you know sometimes i think that's best where you can look at the snow from a distance and admire the the beauty but not be stuck there in the middle of it trying to to deal with it Yes, I, I agree. Yeah. So this is our last live show of 2020 before the new year. Uh, Dr. Major, let's talk a few minutes about some tips and advice for keeping our pets safe during the holiday season. Uh, start by uh, the Christmas tree. What are some things we need to think about when it comes to our main Christmas decoration? Right. Very, very important not to have any type of uh, chemical in that water that you put in the uh, Christmas tree uh, stand. Uh, uh, water is fine; should not be an issue. But uh, there are some additives sometimes that are there that can cause some problems. One of the other things that we see, and I think have kind of fallen into disfavor, especially with cats, is tinsel. Mm -hmm. uh, cats are bad about ingesting tinsel. They like to play with it and then they ingest it, and especially uh, can cause some. Uh, problems with the intestinal tract if that lodges in the intestinal tract so i would be very careful with that also i guess you should make sure that your christmas tree is securely anchored i know that one year when i was in college uh, we had a cat that loved to try to you know climb the christmas tree oh we've got some pictures of cats that uh love to just kind of take up home in the christmas tree i think <laughs> i saw one picture that had either two or three cats sitting in the tree, kind of like an ornament, uh, if you will. But uh, we need to be careful with that. And uh, as you say, anchor it well, make sure that it doesn't tip over. Uh, what about uh, plants like mistletoe and holly? Is that a good idea to keep those safe from our pets as well? You know, it's always a good good idea to keep plants that we're not familiar with or that the cats are not around. Uh, certainly, I would say keep that uh out of reach of the cats if you can. Uh, there's a whole list of uh, poisonous plants, of course, that uh, you can you can get from poison control. But the main thing is uh, just be careful with any type of plant or uh, decoration that you introduce that might be toxic for your cat or dog. Uh, when we talk about food, I think a lot of us uh, know the idea about uh, trying to keep chocolate away from pets. Uh, but, you know, every time I eat my lunch uh, and watch TV, I'm sitting on the couch, the cat will come over and sort of see what I've got on my plate. So we need to keep in mind that our our pets are curious about kind of any food that we have out. Absolutely. And, of course, this is the season that we see uh GI upsets especially in our, our dogs and sometimes in cats, but mainly in dogs, uh, especially if they eat leftovers or food that they're not used to. Uh, I would certainly say that we probably see more 
gastroenteritis, which would be vomiting and diarrhea, and possibly even hemorrhagic gastroenteritis related to eating uh, things that they're not used to and or that are upsetting to them, uh, such as uh, fatty meat uh, would be a prime example of causing some issues. Uh, but there are pet-safe treats that we could get if you want to get your pet something special for the holiday season. Absolutely, but I would pretty well stay with the treats that you use all year. If you're sitting and eating, you know, your pet would love to have nothing better than to eat what you're eating. On the other hand, if you have one of their treats nearby, most of the time they're satisfied. If you'll wait till the end of your meal, and if you start giving during the first part of your meal, you may have trouble Way toward the end of the meal, and uh, sit, you know, have the uh, dog or cat sit, uh, waiting patiently. And uh, you can give one of their treats, and most of the time they're satisfied with that. Um, Dr. Major, we just had a caller, um, Ann, who could not stay on. I believe she was on the road. And uh, actually, she's going to listen to your answer on the podcast. So um, this is a a nice plug for people who don't know about the podcast. Uh, Download the MPB Public Media app or visit our website, mpbonline.org. But Ann wanted to know about first aid kits for dogs, I didn't know that there was such a thing, um, but it is uh, something to think about. If you could talk about those first aid kits for um, for sure. dogs and pets. Great question. And in most cases, we we think ahead of you know first aid kits for people, but we also need to be able to have first aid kits for a dog or cat. Uh, prime example would be trimming nails. We trim our nails at home. Uh, we'll cut it a little bit too close and then we've got a bleeding nail all over the house so something that you can put in your kit for that uses a uh, stipic type uh, first aid there uh, some bandages would not be a bad idea in cases of cut leg or paw uh, as far as uh, basics uh, diarrhea uh, could be treated very similar to diarrhea in, uh, in people uh, if an animal is, is vomiting, I uh, would be very concerned that you could control that with any of the oral medications and probably wouldn't need to be seen by your vet. Uh, some of the medications that are used for diarrhea, for example, uh, could be uh, kaopectate, uh, something that's fairly mild. Remember not to give any of the salicylates like Pepto-Bismol to a cat. Uh, they're very sensitive to the aspirin aspect of that. Uh, so there are things that uh, I would discuss it with your veterinarian. Uh, as far as other first aid type things, you could go, you could have a, you know, a bag full of medication, and it's good to maintain medicine that your your dog or cat is on in case of an emergency, so you will have some extra medicine uh, to be available. Now, Dr. Major, I guess uh, this may be a, a not-so-smart question, but what about al- alcohol for, um, uh, for like, cuts and things? Is it the same alcohol that we use that we could use on our dog? You know, alcohol is going to burn pretty badly. Uh, peroxide might be a better way to clean a cut or this sort of thing, and then you could bandage it if it's big enough that you would have to do that. I, I would choose uh, maybe a 50-50 uh, uh, percent solution of uh, 
peroxide with water, uh, excellent to be able to clean things, whereas uh, your dog might not like it too well if you put uh, isopropyl alcohol on a cut. That would be my thought. You know, Dr. Major, I like your idea of, of consulting with your vet if you are trying to put a, a first aid kit together. They'll know what's best for for your pet. Uh, and also, I would think, though, in case something bad does happen, if you have that first aid kit, it, you might be able to do, you know, that temporary uh, quick treatment and to sort of st- maybe stabilize things until you can uh, get into the vet for, you know, for further investigation. Right. And, you know, a lot of times, we, sometimes people cannot get into the vet. For example, uh, if the dog ate something, dogs are usually much worse about this than cats. Uh, rat poison, for example, you would like to have that animal throw up as soon as possible to alleviate or get the uh, material out of his stomach. And, you know, peroxide given orally can be used to cause emesis or cause animals to throw up. So also, uh, if you can't get in, you can always call your vet and ask for advice. Uh, You hate to diagnose and treat over the phone, but there are some things that can be discussed that might help. All right, and as we go to break, one final uh, tip. Remember that if you have a skittish pet that you might want to let them have a room of their own if you have visitors, maybe uh, relatives coming to visit or small holiday gatherings because we know that uh, we're not having the big gatherings this year due to COVID, uh, but we are having more intimate ones, but that might scare your pet as well. So it is time for our first break of the hour. When we return, we'll welcome Janet Wright from the Mississippi Coast Audubon Society. We're talking winter birds, migrating birds, and those that are here year-round. You can call with questions and comments. Our phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more, so stay tuned. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. If you want to join our conversation this morning with a question or comment, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We've got some open phone lines and a birding expert with us here this morning. So if you have a question or comment, please feel free to call in. We'd love to hear from you on Creature Comforts this morning. So, Janet, thanks for being our guest this morning. If you could tell us a little about your background and how you got involved with the uh, Coast Audubon Society. Oh, okay. Um, I'm glad to be here. It was fun to hear Libby talk about the birds in Oregon. I've spent some time out in Oregon and love those acorn woodpeckers. They're really neat. Um, I I grew up in – can you hear me okay? Sure, go ahead. Okay. I grew up in North Carolina, so I'm was pretty familiar with uh, southern birds. And then I spent a lot of time in the northeast, in uh, New York State and Pennsylvania. And uh, when I retired, uh, I had a daughter who lived here on the Mississippi coast, so I moved down to be close to her. And that was about 15 years ago. Uh, got involved in quite a lot of uh, local field biology and surveys and uh, bird activities, but one of the first ones was the uh, Audubon Society because they uh, they they have so many field trips and activities to get um, 
to get into. And I thought, well, that's a great way to learn the uh, the birds and and the fauna and flora around me. So I've uh, been with them ever since. Uh, about the Audubon Society, is it set up to where, as you mentioned, that people can learn? So if someone knows a lot about birds or even someone who doesn't know a lot about birds but is interested, uh, there's something there for both of them, I would imagine. Sure. Our, our, we're a chapter of the National Audubon Society, and there are several chapters in Mississippi, uh, and they, they go geographically. So if you join the National Audubon Society, you get assigned to whichever is your local chapter. And um, and the chapters do various things uh, depending on where they are and who's who who they who's in the group. Um, one of the things that our chapter does is a lot of field trips that we've been pretty severely constrained over the last uh, year, and we're eager to get back to doing field trips. And on those field trips, the general public is absolutely welcome. It's a great way to learn uh, learn about what's around you. So uh, what makes birds in Mississippi during the winter so special? Well, I, I thought if we're going to talk about winter birds, maybe we ought to just talk, think about what is a winter bird in the first place. I think some people, if you say the winter birds, they picture a poor little bird out in the snow hopping around in its <laughs> bare feet, and they're thinking, oh, it's so cold, you know, they're going to really suffer. And the funny thing is birds don't really mind the cold the way we do. They're much better adapted for it. So... If you see a bird on a cold day out at your bird feeder, it looks fat, and that's because it's fluffed up its feathers and made a, a really nice layer of air and down that keeps its whole body warm. And then to get even nerdier about it, they've got a, a mechanism called a countercurrent um, uh, exchange uh, in their circulatory system so that, that those little feet that look like they're getting so cold in the snow, when they pump blood out into their feet, they don't bother to warm it up. They just so they don't lose any heat that way. They just let the feet get cold. And apparently they're not uncomfortable doing that. So uh, they're much better off than we would be tromping around barefoot in the cold. So uh, if uh, it's not that birds are worried about the cold, they can they can weather the cold. But what happens is in the winter, they've got to get resources and the resources they're, they're not raising young in the winter. But they've still got to get enough energy to stay alive, and they have to uh, stay sheltered. So for there are some birds that can just make it through a really severe winter in the north. And uh, because they're not they're impervious to the cold, if they can go out and find snowshoe hares to eat and uh, stay in in trees that they're familiar with, they're fine. They don't do anything. But if they're birds that are dependent on insects or seeds or resources that are not there in the winter, they've got to move. So over the millennia, birds that uh, took their wings and flew to some place that they could get the resources that they need were the ones that were going to make it through to the next year. So that's where we got the, the origin of, of these great migrations that everybody learns in their preschool days that birds are flying south in the winter. But when we're here in Mississippi, we are south. So uh, that gives us a, a, a different perspective than maybe the rest of the country. So we've got some birds that are here all year round, like cardinals or blue jays. They're going to be at your feet or all year round. You're going to see them everywhere. They can, they're generalists, and they can feed on seeds and insects and whatever they find. They'll do fine all year round. And then there are birds 
that so they're going to be here in the winter so we could call them some of our winter birds and then there are birds that we only have in the summer like ruby-throated hummingbirds or purple martins people know that purple martins if they have a martin house that the purple martins are going to show up in the spring and they're going to stay through summer and then they're going to disappear well ruby-throated hummingbirds feed on nectar and purple martins feed on flying insects and even in Mississippi, we don't have nectar and flying insects in abundance in the winter. So those birds are here in the summer to raise their young, but then they, they take off and go off, go to uh, Central or South America for the winter. So there's those few species that we only have in the summer. And then there's tons of birds that nest further north, and they're going to spend the, the winter in Central or South America, and they go through here in migration. So we have in Mississippi a very exciting time in uh, the spring and the fall when many, many species of birds and the tanagers and the warblers and the orioles and, you know, many species are headed through here, uh, especially for us on the coast. They stop right before they go across the Gulf of Mexico and they tank up and get get uh, get fat reserves for, so they're here for a few weeks, and then they disappear for the winter. And then when they're coming back, they have, after they make that big trek across the Gulf again, they have to stop and tank up again before they go further north. So we get exciting spring and fall migrations here. But in the winter, what we get are a lot of birds that, are, that nest up in the high Arctic or the boreal forests of Canada, um, ducks, uh, loons, cormorants. Uh, a lot of hawks and shorebirds um, and many other species that they're headed south, but when they get here, they're going to be fine. They don't need to go further south for the resources that they need to make it through the winter. They're fish eaters or uh, some of them are seed eaters, but many of them are, are going to feed along the shores, and this is a great place for them to stop. So we actually have more birds and more bird species here in the winter than we do in the summer. And it's a great time to go birding. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Today we're visiting with Dr. Janet Wright and talking about birds that we find in Mississippi this time of year. We've got some open phone lines if you want to call in and join the conversation. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. On the line, we do have a caller, and it's Anna calling in from Oxford. Good morning, Anna. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Um, it was either early this year or last year that I called you and told you I had found a very twiggy bird's nest in my Eliagnus. I was trimming the, the vine parts of the Eliagnus. Well, uh, yesterday I was trimming some more, and there is I've got several Eliagnus in this same place, and I found another nest exactly the same, and it's very twiggy. I mean, it's, it's not lined with down or anything, um, and it's about six feet off, off the ground. And last year, nobody seemed to know what it might be, but we have a bird lady here, <laughs> so maybe she <laughs> might know. Um, the, uh, uh, I can't imagine. It's obviously not a squirrel. And it can't be a rook or um, a hawk because it's too low. Um, and I don't know, you know, what animal would put twigs together like this. And secondly, I did see a, um, uh, a kinglet the other day. 
a pair of them, little red-headed kinglets. Janet, any thoughts on what bird might make a twiggy nest? Well, first about the kinglets. They're one of my favorite winter birds. Um, they're, they're really great ones to see, and uh, that, that was a treasure that you got there with the ruby-crowned kinglet. Um, I would say, well, this is a great time for me to do a disclaimer and say that most of my time in Mississippi has been on the coast, and so I'm mostly familiar with coastal birds, and we have a lot of really expert birders that, are, uh, that live up closer to Oxford or uh, in other parts of the state, so they, they would be welcome to, to uh, chime in on this. Um, cardinals make a, a pretty twiggy nest, but it's uh, very I, closely I, I, woven. I, yeah, I and, see. Okay, another possibility would be a, a brown thrasher. Uh, that sounds sounds like, especially in a bush, that that might be one possibility. There is a, a, a pretty good, it's an old, but it's a good field guide to the bird nests um, that you that you might be able to get in the library or um, or look online. Um, but that those would be the first guesses I could come up with. And you might watch next next uh, summer for a brown thrasher. The, well, we do have them around because I, I have them under my some of my other bushes. Um, it, it's funny because it's so so large and it just doesn't look like it's been occupied. It's like somebody has said, well, maybe I'll just build a nest here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are, there are birds that build um, false nests. The Carolina uh-huh. wrens do that. They build a number of nests and then the, the male will help build the nest and then uh, they'll only use one of them. Uh, so that would be a very twiggy nest, but it would tend to have a hole in the side rather than a, a cup shape. Familiar with uh, wrens, we've got a lot of those around here too. But this one is, is sort of kind of a, um, a little bit flat, but with a little bit of a hollow in the center. And it definitely twigs. I mean, it's, it's, it can't be a small bird. I mean, they couldn't pick up these twigs. Um, uh-huh. And I, I don't think I have uh, monkeys around here. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and squirrel, Janet, squirrel nests, what do you I know, think because about they, a dove? They, they, I know our morning doves oh, have what we've always called a sketchy nest. Yes, that's a good thought, and that that size sounds about right, and it tends to be a little flatter. So I'll bet that's. Uh, I think Libby's onto something there. A, a morning dove. Did yes, ma'am. Yeah, because we've got a lot of those around here too. Um, Anna, also, I would say if uh, you could take a picture of it and send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll make sure the folks over at the uh, Natural uh, Science Museum get it, and maybe they can help you track it down. Or as Janet suggested, if there's a a birder from North Mississippi listening this morning that might have an idea of what uh, it might be, maybe we can get some some citizen science going on and see if we can't help you figure out uh, what you have there. But we appreciate uh, the call. It would be lovely, but I don't have a cell phone. Uh, All right. Uh, Could you sketch a picture? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Well, maybe someone listening uh, will... uh, uh, we'll we'll know, and as Janet suggested, you know the the uh, the the nest guide uh, might be helpful as well. But we appreciate your uh, calling us this morning. We need to take another break. When we get back, we'll continue talking with our guest, Dr. Janet Wright, about the birds of Mississippi. Coming up, we'll talk about eagles, owls, and hummingbirds. We're also looking for your questions this morning. The phone number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464 email animals at mpbonline.org we've got Bill on the line from Iron City, Tennessee and we'll get to his call after this break so stay tuned 
Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest today is Dr. Janet Wright from the Mississippi Coast Audubon Society. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. And if you miss any of today's show, you can always subscribe to the podcast using any podcast app or download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone, and then you get to listen to all the MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. To join our conversation this morning, it's a phone call, 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464 or email animals at mpbonline.org. Got a couple calls to get to. Let's uh, start with uh, Bill, who's called in from um, Iron City, Tennessee. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air with us. Morning. How are you all? Doing good. What do you have for us today? A while back, I called with a bus. Yeah. Bill, you're kind of cutting in and out on us. So if you could maybe uh, drop off the line and give us a call back, we'll try to get you back on the air. Uh, but I think we've got a bad phone line, and we're not really able to hear what you have to say. So please give us a call back. Maybe we can clear that up with a better phone line. Uh, so let's press on. Next, let's go to uh, Jason, who's in Jackson. Good morning, Jason. Go ahead, please. Good morning. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I was, uh, uh, this past Friday, I, I sailed out to uh, Horn Island, for the first time, and it was a beautiful day, and of course, Horn Island is very beautiful. Um, and the only disheartening part was the presence of a lot of plastic debris. I was on the east side of the shore, and I was wondering two things: uh, uh, its impact on the uh, general bird population, and then also if there's, there's been any efforts or uh, ways that people could volunteer to basically uh, having an ongoing effort to clean clean that up. Mm -hmm. um, So I was just curious about those things. If I could offer any way, I'd like to. So I just wanted to um, pitch in on that uh, topic. You know, Janet, we hear a lot about sea turtles and other sea creatures and the plastic, but how does it affect uh, birds on the coast? Well, I think the main way it would affect birds is if they ingest plastic um, inadvertently because they it, it either looks like something that they would eat or it goes in with something that they'd eat. And uh, just as it does with marine mammals and fish and sea turtles, that can block their digestive system and uh, could eventually be fatal. And, of course, you uh, probably more often than that, what you see in terms of debris is uh, birds, water birds that uh, take in a, a fish hook and a fish line, and and uh, it's uh, it's disheartening to see, like a cormorant, for instance, that's got a fishing line around uh, around its bill, can't eat. Uh. You can't catch it to uh, to rehabilitate it. Um, that's that's very sad. We do have a very active coastal cleanup program. Uh, the the local one here is uh, run out of um, Mississippi State Extension. Uh, so okay. if you look at for Mississippi Coastal Cleanup, I think that that would be a good way for you to connect. And uh, they have cleanup days, but they could also connect you with other cleanup activities. Okay, all right. That's a great thing well, to do I, to volunteer for that. Yeah, I was 
tempted to bring a uh, you know garbage bag out next time <laughs> fix this because it, it, it was just a lot of stuff out there and it was uh, too bad. But anyways, so everything that you bring that in is something that's that's um, that's a little bit of help. Sure. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for calling in this morning. Uh, let's move on uh, with our phone calls. Next, we will go to Bill, who's called in from Greenwood. Good to hear from you this morning, Bill. Go ahead. Okay, Mr. Farrell. Uh, I got a, two questions for the lady. Uh, <laughs> first off, uh, I had some uh, ragweed growing amongst my uh, goldenrod and sunflowers, and uh, and I noticed that I kept seeing birds. I was going to cut it down, but I get, noticed I kept seeing birds going in there and feeding on the ragweed and the goldenrod. Uh, I didn't know they did that, and I was wondering if any other seed besides sunflower seed that birds like to eat, and I'd like an update on the uh, uh, ivory-billed uh, woodpecker, if there's any, any uh, sightings or anything about it lately. I haven't heard nothing. Okay, the update on the ivory-billed woodpecker is it's just as extinct as it used to be. Uh, I don't don't believe anybody has come up with a credible sighting or uh, in recent years. So, uh, but but there are plenty of other birds to worry about now that as there many of them are uh, declining. So we got to keep an eye on those bird populations. Um, your other question, remind me where we were on that. Uh, yes, it was the seeds. Uh, oh, the seeds. I, birds, like many, many birds love seeds. And they they love seeds of uh, practically any kind of native plant, and they're also eating seeds of non-native plants. So, uh, and I believe ragweed is a non-native plant. Um, so uh, most of those are at least reasonably good for them. They, they're nutritious, and that's why they're eating them. They're also on those plants to uh, pick off insects. And, of course, insects are, in turn, eating uh, plants and seeds and getting uh, nectar from the flowers. So uh, you can see birds cleaning off just about any kind of uh, plant that's blooming or has seeds. Um, the, the seeds that you buy in the, at Walmart or at a seed store are uh, sort of generic uh, seeds that many kinds of birds will eat, and also they're they have you know they're things that are grown commercially. They're easy to grow commercially, and they're things that store well. So, um, if one alternative to putting out bird feeders is to just get lots of native plants growing in your yard, those will in turn uh, attract insects, and those will attract birds. Uh, you can find out a lot more about that by Googling uh, birds and plants. There are many uh, birds and plants sort of um, uh, programs going on, some of which are Audubon related and some of which are not, but uh, that can get you onto uh, resources that you can uh, use to find more about that. All right, Bill, we appreciate your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We had another Bill earlier called in from Iron City, Tennessee, had some phone issue problems. Uh, but let's see if we got a better line. Bill, thanks for calling back. Hopefully we've got a better line. Go ahead. Yeah, I moved. I'm, I'm sorry about that. I got um, very, very stagnant uh, service out here, so sometimes I have a problem with my phone. I apologize for that. No worries. You're loud and clear now. Go ahead. Oh, that's great. Uh, a while back I had called you with a bobcat sighting in my yard. Uh, I don't know if you recall, but um, the other day um, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty darn sure it was a lynx. I saw a lynx in my yard. 
Libby, any thoughts on that? Uh, a bobcat is what we call it here. Now, where? Right, tell me again, where was it? What kind of habitat and where in the state? Well, it's Iron City, Tennessee, which is mid-south. It's just above uh, Florence, Alabama. I'm right on the border. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's. I would think if it's a if it's a rural area, uh, was there some wood cover nearby wherever he was walking? Oh my goodness, yes. I got 50 acres of pine farm behind my house, and I and my yeah. and my my lot's three acres with all kinds of wood, all kinds of trees, and it was just my, a horrible yeah. sight. My opinion is that you're very lucky to have a bobcat and to get to see it because uh, they're pretty secretive, and he probably was upset with himself that you got a good look at him but because uh, yep. they like to hide from you just like any other cat. And they don't let you get close. They don't get close enough so you can get a good picture either. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I would say, you know, if you've got small um, dogs or um, little cats, just be mindful of it. But um, oh, yeah. I've My never had any trouble up. with bobcats. And My even when we had chickens, up. bobcats were one of the things that did not bother our chickens. So I, I've always liked them. Yeah, my babies but, uh, stay in the house. I got two uh -huh. cats, but they never go outdoors. They're house cats. They're, they're, they're pamp yeah. They have a pampered life. You know, <laughs> that's, I that's, never let them out. I think that's the best for cats, yes. All right. Well, I'm glad you got to see a bobcat, and I'll bet that is what it was. All right, Bill, thanks for calling back. Good to hear from you. We always like to hear about uh, those brushes with nature as well as pet questions and the birds and things that we talk about on the air. We've got another caller to get to. Let's stay on the phone lines and go to Tim in Lumberton. Good morning, Tim. You're on the air with us. Yes, I got a comment and a question, too. Uh, I've seen a big old big nest, kind of like that lady was talking about, a bird's nest built up in a magnolia tree. It's about 10 foot high. It was about the size of a baseball cap, you know, maybe with a brim cut off. But it did have big, big twigs in it, and I just happened to be up under it looking the other day, and I seen it was one of them big old doves that, that raised around here, and they not skittish or nothing, and uh, and quails raised around here too. They the little ones come up in the yard, and it, it was amazing. But that's probably what that nest is. But my question is, these robins, we get these fronts coming in, you know, after a rain, a front, the yard is full of robins, and then when it warms up, they're gone. Where do they go, you know, when we don't see them? Uh, well, robins are, of course, they're iconic for the rest of the country as the birds that leave in the winter. But for Mississippi, they're the birds that show up in the winter. So we're we're housing a lot of the robins all year all uh, winter long, and it could be that yours are just they're just moving from spot to spot where they can find uh, they're digging around in lawns and finding uh, insects and seeds. Uh, so they they're just because they flock they're really obvious you see a lot of them at a time, but they're just uh, moving from yard to yard um and they're probably staying in your area or they're coming further south right down here to the coast all right tim thanks for your call it is time for the last break of this hour uh we'll we've been talking throughout the hour and we'll continue our conversation with dr janet wright about the birds of mississippi still time for you to call in if you have a question or comment the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring it's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. 
Back to wrap things up after this. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell, here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest today is Dr. Janet Wright from the Mississippi Coast Audubon Society. Uh, Janet, uh, we talked about the abundance of birds uh, in Mississippi here in winter and how lucky we are. Uh, Give us some tips for folks that might want to see birds they've never seen before. Well, um, I was thinking about the the birds that show up here in the winter that uh, people are very familiar with. And one of the ones, for instance, that people always talk about are cedar waxwings that they come in flocks and they feed on the berries in your uh, in trees and shrubs. And people love those. But there's another one that uh, is one of my favorites that we only get in the winter and we get them in great abundance. And if you want to make yourself an instant birder, here's what you do. Go outside if you've got trees or, or uh, shrubs in your yard or stop along the, along the road someplace where there's a lot of trees and shrubs. Get out of your car and you're going to do what we in birding call pishing, P-I-S-H-I-N-G. I don't know how this is going to render on the radio, <laughs> but you just stand there and you go psh, 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 psh. And if you do that for about 30 seconds, you're probably going to be mobbed by the yellow rumped warbler they're out there there are thousands of them and they're there uh, all over the state in the winter we call them butter butts because (laughs) you can see that uh, that yellow rump from quite a distance away it's a very small bird but uh, that's one that is really fun to call in in the winter just go out there and pish and see what you get see i'm practicing so is that similar to the type of sound that they make um, no, it's a sound that I, uh, it may sound like an alarm call to them. So they're coming to mob you and find out what's going on and maybe uh, chase you away. That does sound like fun. So everybody get out there and, and practice their pishing and, and, and you'll get the butter butts in, in large numbers. We've got one last caller. I'm, I'm going to watch. Yep. <laughs> We've got one last caller to get to. Let's say good morning to Rachel in Starkville. You're on the air with us, Rachel. Go ahead. Hi, sorry to stop the conversation about pishing, but uh, I'd like to know the difference between a pollated woodpecker and an ivory bill woodpecker. Oh, sure. The uh, pileated woodpecker uh, is about the same size as an ivory billed woodpecker. So it's uh, so many, many times people have thought that they saw an ivory billed woodpecker, but it it was a pileated. And the pileated woodpeckers are really, or some people say pileated, the way you do. It's perfectly mm-hmm. good pronunciation. Um, they're, they're, um, they're actually pretty common. They have more red on them uh, than, a, than an ivory bill, and they don't have the light color bill. But they perch on the side of trees. They, in fact, they can tear a tree apart with that uh, big bill, those, uh, trying to get insects out. Um, and uh, the call is different. I think you can Google that. You can get a call of a affiliated woodpecker uh, by listening online. And there are some old recordings of what uh, ivory-billed woodpeckers sound like. But the ivory bills lived only in the 
old growth swamps uh, in places like Arkansas, uh, maybe Tennessee. Um, and pileated woodpeckers are in our neighborhoods. Great. Thank you so much. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Rachel. Good to hear from you this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, wrapping things up with our guest, Dr. Janet Wright. Uh, so, Janet, uh, it's Christmas time. People thinking about gifts for other people. Um, if you could put together a Christmas gift pack for the person who wants to get more into bird watching, what three things would it include? Oh gosh, um, I would say a, a bird feeder is always a good, a good gift because you can never have too many. If you have a bunch around your yard and they're different kinds, then you'll attract different kinds of birds, and they're not in competition with each other. So I would go for that as a surefire gift and add some seeds in there or a suet cake to go with it. But then there are things that you can do that are just downright free. Uh, you, can, uh, you can go online and get a little app called Merlin, Merlin, the Merlin Bird app that will, is a beautiful help for people, especially beginners, to uh, identify birds that they see. You're just going to supply the, the basic size of the bird and colors and It'll suggest what birds you might be seeing in your area, and you'll say, whoops, that's it. Um, so that's a, that's a downright free one. Another uh, free app is one called iNaturalist, iNaturalist app, and you, you put that on your phone. You can send in pictures. If the lady with the nest had sent a picture to iNaturalist, she could get it identified by other people online. So both of those are free things you can do, and we can always use free things at Christmas. <laughs> You talked about bird feeders, and I think we've talked about this before, but is it a good idea if you have several to sort of space them out sort of evenly through your yard so maybe the birds don't get to be too competitive? Yeah, get them in different places and uh, watch out for – don't put a bird feeder right near a a bush or a shed that a a cat could hide beside because uh, cats quickly pick up. That's a great place to – find their favorite prey is to, to, to get near a bird feeder. And also, uh, if you're finding that the birds that leave the feeder are running into your windows, you might consider switching, either putting up uh, decals on the window or move the bird feeder to another place, because collisions are a major cause of uh, mortality for birds. All right, and we've got about a minute left. We've uh, mentioned waxwings and the butterbutts. Do you have another favorite bird that uh, folks might see this time of year? Um, well, okay. I would say my other favorite winter bird is uh, is the northern harrier. It's a hawk. used to be called the marsh hawk. If you have marsh anywhere near you, uh, either salt marsh or freshwater marsh, this is a great bird to look for. They're only here in the winter. They might be brown or gray, depending on what sex they are and they fly just like a crop duster Hmm. they fly low over the marsh right evenly over the marsh looking for uh rodents usually and sometimes small birds as prey and when they get to the edge of the marsh just like a crop duster plane they they go up and wheel around and come back the other way and it's really fun to watch uh, a uh, northern harrier fly so watch for those in your marshes you can tell for sure that it's a northern harrier if it's right uh, close to the ground and if it has a white rump patch. All right, very good. We always like to remind you that uh, if you see something that you need identified or you want to share a find that you uh, see out in nature, maybe you see a rare bird or 
an animal or an insect and you just think it's kind of cool and you want to share it with us or you need some identification, remember our email address. It's animals at mpbonline.org. Through Libby, we have access to the folks at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and we'll get some experts on it, try to figure out what it is that you saw. Uh, to uh, And then, as again, we can share it online as well. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or a previous show, visit mpbonline.org slash Creature Comforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Dr. Janet Wright, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.